There are those that argue that time is the great equalizer, in the sense that every human only has so much of it. Some say no, it's death, which comes for us all and leaves us all the same, buried. But I tend to disagree with both. Some people get more time than others because some people never truly die. Time has made heroes and monsters out of many men, allowing them to loom large in our collective consciousness even now. But what about the ones left in their wakes? The ones standing in their shadows? There's another popular saying that behind every great man is a great woman, which is another lie. Sometimes that woman was just a woman, no greatness to be found. But every one of them, great or not, were real, living, breathing, thinking beings whose lives have been consigned to a name in a list of somebody else's accomplishments. Maybe the man was greater, but I've always had a fascination for the bystanders, the side characters, the ones who persevere because they must. They were the spouses and mistresses, the victors and victims, the companions and enemies of the world's greatest leaders. Some were important in the grand scheme, most were not. But I'm not here for the grand scheme, and now neither are you. Long history very short, this is Little Slights, where I talk about the women, and sometimes the men, who lived and died in the shadows cast by history's limelight. Before we get started, a disclaimer. I'm obviously American, and this will have an inevitably American-centric view on world history. If you're an international listener, you'll likely hear about a person who's quite famous to you that I've never heard of, and vice versa. I'll never claim perfect knowing. With that said, let's begin, shall we? I know we're meant to start as we go on, and so for my first choice, I picked a woman whose life, excepting one brief blimp in which she was married to one of the most notorious men of all time, is mostly unremarkable. Let's talk about the Bride of Transylvania. In 1497, a woman passed away, in her bed, on a walk, naturally, unnaturally, no one is quite sure. She most likely died in Sonkrek, a small village in what was historically known as Transylvania, now called Romania. Many believe she was buried close to her former husband, in the tomb of Snagov near Bucharest, but considering that, one, said husband likely isn't even there himself, and two, the crown recognized her by her first husband's surname her whole adult life, that location is unlikely, meaning no one knows where she is. She is a woman entirely lost to time. She was survived by a son, or no children at all, depending on which historian you listen to, as well as her fourth husband. That one's for sure. She was the much-married, maybe motherly, one-time princess of Wallachia. She was the wife of Vlad Tepish, the Impaler. But before all that, she was Justina Zalagia. Justina's origins are just as mysterious as her ending. She was born in the early 1450s, but her parentage is up for debate. A royal charter referred to her as the daughter of Osvat Zalagia, but this was later contested by another document alleging that Osvat's younger brother, Ladislaus, was her father instead. She is commonly accepted to be Osvat's daughter, in accordance with the charter, but it is theorized that after Ladislaus' death, Osvat took guardianship of the then-infant Justina and raised her as his own. Whoever her father was, it would not be nearly so important to her life as who her cousin, Matthias Corvinus, would become. Hungarian women in that time, like many of their contemporaries, fell into strict gender roles, heavily influenced by the predominant religion of the time. Justina herself would have grown up Roman Catholic, 
and expected to bend herself to the wills of her male relatives and her husband, run the household, and produce offspring, preferably males. However, women, especially noble women, were not prevented from owning property, even fiefdoms, and they could act as regents while their husbands were away. I can't tell you if Justina was educated to read or write, as no letters from her exist, or if she was groomed for any kind of leadership, but I can tell you that when her cousin Matthias became king of Hungary in 1458, Justina's future as both bargaining ship and chess piece was set. Matthias had inherited a country under siege from the Turks, and needed power and security both internally and against his enemies quickly. Matthias was the son of a military leader, not a king or even an important nobleman, so he had no dynastic ancestry or royal relationships to fall back on to help him secure land or treaties. The new king sought stabilization primarily through strategic reforms, reorganization, and defensive maneuvers, but Justina still served her purpose, several times in fact. She would be married four times throughout her life. Husband number one arrived when Justina was in her late teens or early twenties, sometime during or after 1467. Ladislas Pongrak of Zint Miklos was part of an incredibly influential noble family who owned a lot of land in Upper Hungary, present-day Slovakia, which gave them a position of power that didn't sit well with our new king. Mateus Corvinus made him surrender some of that land to the crown, costing him a fortress and villages, but it wasn't a complete wash for Pongrak. In exchange, Matthias gave him his cousin Justina, as well as the Transylvanian estates he had seized from another powerful family, the Erdies, namely the castle and surrounding villages at Gernyazeg in Transylvania, lands that would be co-owned by both Pongrak and Justina. She was young, presumably fertile, with an extremely powerful relative eager to see her place and therefore his influence assured. It was a good deal for all involved, Justina included, one she likely could have been content with for the rest of her days. But Pongrik died in 1474, leaving Justina with no husband and no children. The land, and the properties therein, however, now belonged solely to her. And what belonged to Justina, in a way, belonged to Matthias. For a king, you couldn't have tied the whole affair in a neater bow. Land, and therefore power, had been secured in the north and the east, and Justina was a more appetizing tidbit than ever. Just in time, too. To tell the next bit of Justina's story, we'll need someone else's backstory first. Vlad III, a.k.a. the Impaler, a.k.a. Dracula, a.k.a. yes, that dude, had been in Hungarian captivity for the last 13 years. After his ill-fated run against Mehmed II, an Ottoman sultan he had been warring against for years, he went to Matthias Corvinus in 1462 to plead for help, but the king instead had him imprisoned in the castle of Visegrad. It was, by all accounts, not a pleasant stay, and outside of those walls, Corvinus would use that time wisely, spreading tales of Vlad's cruelty and barbaric nature across Europe to cast shadows on Vlad's claim if need be, building the foundations of the legend we know today. To be clear, Vlad had given him more than enough to build on, but Corvinus was not above playing up the spectacle to his advantage. As the years passed, however, Corvinus had a change of heart, or, more likely, a change in tactics. A fellow ruler, Stephen III of Moldavia, a.k.a. Stephen the Great, pleaded for Vlad's release in order to have someone ruling over Wallachia who would fight the Ottoman Empire. Corvinus complied, and in 1475, Vlad the Impaler was released and recognized by Corvinus as the rightful ruler of Wallachia. And who better to stand by his side than a relative of the King of Hungary himself? Now it is said by some that Vlad had caught the young Justina's eye, and she was instantly smitten with him, eager to marry him. 
and I suppose it would be nice to believe that there was a smattering of affection there, no matter how small or significant it was. As nice as it can be when the groom is a fratricidal prisoner fond of ramming spikes through people's heads, which, yes, he did actually do. But that consideration was likely a far second to Matthias when he made the match. And so, in 1475, Justina Zalagia was married to Vlad and became the princess of Wallachia, according to Hungary at least. The Ottoman Empire was less enthusiastic. In keeping with the theme for this episode, there is no exact date for their marriage. Now I know some of you are getting ahead of yourself. You've read or watched Dracula or one of its offshoots and are currently wondering when Justina is going to throw herself off the ramparts because the Turks have told her that her husband is dead. First of all, a point of order on Vlad's behalf. Bram Stoker's Dracula bears so little connection to the man in question that Vlad the Impaler is not even mentioned in the author's notes for the story. Second of all, if it was inspired by anyone, it would not have been Justina, but an unnamed first wife with whom Vlad had his first son, Menea. She most likely did not throw herself off of any tall buildings either, but we can't be sure. Whatever the case, Justina kept her feet firmly planted on the ground, even as Vlad moved his family first to Transylvania, then to Buda, before eventually settling in Pish at the very creatively named Dracula Haza, or Dracula's house. You see, Corvinus may have tied his family to Tepish by marriage, but had not supplied any military support to Vlad's claim in Wallachia, so the next year was spent scrabbling for Vlad's throne. Justina ran Dracula's house as her husband ran negotiations and treaties. Alliances moved like sand under their feet. It was tricky. The whole twisting tale of who led what from where and when in Transylvania, Romania, Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire at that time is a fascinating tale, but not the one you'll hear today. Back to our story. In this time, Justina gave birth to one, possibly two sons. Historians debate over if she was their mother at all, or if they were more offspring of Vlad's doomed first wife. Vlad himself was extraordinarily busy during the marriage, often off in one country or another, capturing fortresses or fending off sieges, so even one pregnancy seems like a miracle. It doesn't help that her son's histories could compete with Justina's in terms of obscurity. One almost certainly died before 1486, but the other, another Vlad, but not Vlad IV, who was our impaler's brother, either survived to unsuccessfully fight for his claim in the 1490s, or died young and childless in Buddha like his brother. The House of Dracula's Luck and Heirs was cancelled out by those heirs' close friendship with the Grim Reaper, as Justina was soon to find out. Vlad went to fight the Ottomans in Bosnia, Transylvania, and his own Wallachia on the behest of Corvinus and other nearby rulers for the entirety of early 1476. It yielded success in the fall, where he was once again crowned by the people of Wallachia as their prince. For two whole months, Justina was by his side, now formally known as the Princess Consort, then the Ottomans returned. Vlad and his forces were massacred in battle in early January 1477. Vlad and Justina had been married less than two years. Picture a woman and two children. Wait, maybe take the children away. Justina was crownless and the widow of an overthrown ruler. It was dangerous territory for anyone to be in and Justina needed a safety net. Her only remaining source of power was the Transylvanian estates she had gained from her first marriage, the castle at Gernizeg and the surrounding villages, but those were in danger now too. The Erdi family of Sonkrek, the original owners of the property, were disputing her claim in favor of their own. Backing them was the prominent Suki family, who had their own ties to the land. Most historical facts about this time are fairly cut and dry, but there are a few that remarked that the fight was bitter and Justina stubborn. She was determined to win. 
Marriage had gotten her power before, and it was not surprising that it was this avenue she turned to again. Paul Suki was the nephew of the previous Suki owner of her estates, and husband number three for the former princess. They were most likely married in late 1478, almost two years after Vlad's death, with the first reference of her new role in late January of 1479. Justina and her Schrodinger of offspring were seemingly safe once more. But like everything in her life up to that point, it would not last for long. Suki died in that very same year, leaving Justina thrice widowed and once more embroiled in land disputes with the Erdee family. She decided to give the marriage thing one more try, and this time she went straight to the source. Two years after the death of Suki, she went a fourth time. Her groom was a member of the very family giving her so much trouble, John Erdee of Somkarek. It would be her last marriage. Gernia's was hers, Justina was secure. After a lifetime of kings and princes and husbands, she settled down for an unremarkable life for the next 16 years. She died in 1497, outliving three husbands, possibly two sons, her crown's usurper, and her cousin, the man who ostensibly set her on her original path, Matthias Corvinus. It is very likely that Justina was passed from man to man, marrying her for her title and deeds and connections. She was a woman in a time unfriendly to the autonomy of her gender, and perhaps she had no choice at all, we don't know, as all she ever is is a byline in a list of matrimonies. But here's another take. Justina made herself safe. She knew that property was power, and one of the very few kinds a woman could lay claim to, and so, once she had it, she made sure to hold on to it with everything she had available to her. If that everything was her gender, her bloodline, and her subsequent marriage ability, so be it. You use what you have. In a world of shifting power and alliances, Justina sunk her roots into Transylvania, and she would not be moved. I know which interpretation I like better, but even if I'm completely wrong, it doesn't make her any less of a person. And anyway, this isn't my story, it's hers. Justina Zalagia's. Whether she was pawn or player, she lived. And that's what matters.